0: Turn to Malachi chapter 3, Malachi 3, Malachi continues to hammer the people of his day as he's been doing with their unfaithfulness to God, their disobedience to God, and this time the problem we're looking at tonight is their lack of tithing. Now that may not seem like a big problem to you, (coughs) but as far as God was concerned, in his time it was a big problem. There's something you need to understand Uh, as we look in this section on tithing, or as we look in the entirety of the book of Malachi, it's a key verse here in Malachi 3.6. I've always liked the verse. All these issues of disobedience by the people in different areas, they all pertain, they all relate to, uh, and they all show a misunderstanding of God's character. They show a misunderstanding of who God is. Had they appreciated the character of God, had they properly understood who God really was, I think they would have walked in obedience to God. So let's start off by first by considering the God of grace. That's in verses 6 and 7, the God of grace. Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. We'll stop there for right now. One thing is made abundantly clear in the book of Malachi as you read it, and that is God's character is sterling. It's, it's perfect. He's perfect in all his attributes. He's consistent. He never acts out of character. You also see that trait in the Son of God, Hebrews 13.8. It says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always the same. He always acts the same. He's always consistent with his person. He, you can always count on who that he's going to be, who he says he is. can't count on much in this life. Uh, you can't rely on much in this life. People or circumstances or much of anything. You can always count on the person of God. He doesn't act with patience today and then tomorrow he flies off the handle. God doesn't do that. That's us. We do that stuff. We can count on a perfectly consistent character from the Lord. Now, in theology, when you talk about theology and you read theology, they call that the immutability of God. God's immutability. What does that mean? That means he's unchangeable. The unchangeableness of God. Wayne Grudem defines a term like this. He says... God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, purposes, and promises. Let me say that again. God is unchanging unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes, and his promises. God has no character flaws. He, God makes a promise, and he doesn't break it, <laughs> unlike us, as we saw in, in Matthew chapter 2. God makes the decree, and he doesn't alter it. Uh, he says what he, what he is what he is. I mean, that's how God is. He does not change. He says, I love that verse, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, regarding his being, the person of God, Psalm 102, 25 says this, of old, what a great verse, of old God, you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Psalm 102, 25, the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure and all of them will wear out like a garment like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same. You're the same. Your years will never, will not come to an end. God was here before there was a universe. He created the universe. He's going to be here after there, there is no universe. God doesn't change. He's always the same. James 1.17 says about the Lord, it says, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. It doesn't vary in what he does and who he is. Regarding his purposes, Psalm thirty-three eleven states this, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. In Isaiah 46, 9, the Lord says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed and I will do it, he says. And then regarding his promises, <clears throat> Numbers 23, 19. Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. it says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. He doesn't need to repent of anything. He's never sinned, not like us. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's, you can count on God to fulfill all his promises. But you say, what about those times in the Bible where it says God relented, God repented? God changed his mind, that type of thing. Like, for example, in Nineveh, Jonah preaches to this extremely evil nation of Assyria. And he goes there, and his message is this, at least the one that's recorded for us, says, Yet forty days and Nineveh, capital of Assyria, shall be overthrown. Should not the Lord have overthrown those people even when they repented? He said he was going to do it. So why did he not do it? Well, because that would be out of character for God, you see. His character is to be gracious. And, and forgiving, and to forgive those who repent. That's his character. It's out of character for, for him not to have, uh, to have relented there. Jonah even says so much in Jonah 4.2, what a great verse Jonah 4.2 is. Jonah says concerning the repentance of the Assyrians, of the, uh, he says this to the Lord. Lord was not, by the way, let me just say this. Jonah was not some, some prophet that didn't know anything about God and you know, was just kind of hanging out. This guy was considered to be a great prophet at the time. He says, "Lord, was not this while what I said while I was still in my own country? I didn't want to come here, Lord, to this nation of Assyria. I didn't want them to repent, quite frankly." He says, "Was not this what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, in order to forestall a possibility of repentance because I know you, Lord, how you are." He says, "I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God." slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Why did Jonah run the other way? Because he knew that God would probably, he knew that God, he was well acquainted with God. He knew who God was. And he knew that God would extend the offer of forgiveness even to the chief of sinners. If they would repent, he would relent. He would hold back on his judgment. And he didn't want that to happen in Nineveh. He wanted to see them destroyed. That's what he wanted. And then Jonah 3.10 says regarding Nineveh's repentance, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So does God change his attitude uh, toward people when it concerns their judgment when he says he's going to judge them? Well, only if they change their attitude about God and turn in repentance he will, as he says he will. You see, that is when the, you have to understand that's within the scope of his character. He, it's not out of character. It's very much within the scope of his character. That's who he is. He's a forgiving God. Of course, he knew in advance what they would do. He knew all this stuff. And he did, didn't take him by surprise, but that's God. He's a gracious God. Now, I didn't give you the complete theological definition of immutability earlier, just part of it. Here's the complete definition. God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes, and promises, yet God does, yet God does act and feel emotions not like he's emotionless when things are happening here. And he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. He acts and feels differently in response to different situations. God may declare judgment, but he always invites the sinner to repent. He always extends that offer of repentance, in which case, if they repent, he may withhold his judgment. That's God. That's the God of grace that we serve. And just like God extended his, uh, his repentance to Nineveh in that day, all through history and, and to this day, he still, rep- he still extends his offer of repentance to all who would turn to him, even to, to you and I. You've got to understand that judgment's coming for those who re- reject Christ. But repentance is also a possibility for those who would turn from their sin. God extends that. They would turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ alone. God is gracious to save people. He's in the business of accepting those who have repented. That's what God is. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, that statement is referring to the past and the present. He's never changed in the past. He's not going to change now. God's always this way. He's not fickle. He's not like us. He's not reliable today and unreliable tomorrow. He doesn't go around breaking his promises. He doesn't need to grow and learn and develop like we do. He knows everything already. By the way, this unchangeableness of God, this this thing we call the immutability of God, is not something that we share in. We can't share in this with God. We are ever-changing. He's never changing, right? God never changes. We can't count on us. The attributes we can share in some small measure with God are things like love and mercy and and patience. And God tells us to be this way. And yet, we're still not going to miss the mark by far. Now, why does the Lord say here, at this point in Malachi, that he does not change. I think the second half of that statement there, uh, verse 6 and the first half of verse 7 will help us understand. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. For from the days of your fathers you turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Now, when it says that the sons of Jacob are not consumed, it means that they have not ceased. They have not ceased to exist. Israel has not ceased to exist as a nation. And why have they not ceased to exist? Because the Lord has not changed. His covenant promises he made with them still are there. They haven't changed. His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob haven't changed. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. People are going to be blessed through you. He hasn't changed. His character of long-suffering towards Israel has not changed. His love toward Israel has not changed. Even as we approach the end of the Old Testament in Malachi... You still see that promise of God's, or the, the, the statement of God's love, Malachi 1-2. We've said it many times. I have loved you, says the Lord. All through history, Israel's history, even at the end now of the Old Testament, he's saying, and I still love you. That's amazing. God's character does not change. Even though they've treated him with irreverence, as chapter 1 and 2 says. Even though they brought worthless offerings to him. Even though it says the Levites have corrupted the the covenant with uh, with Levi, the Levitical priest. Even though it says that they've married pagan wives in chapter 3. Even though it says that they've divorced their wives and and they know that God hates that. Even though it says they're weary of the Lord, uh, the Lord's weary with them and their words. They made foolish statements like this in uh, chapter 2 verse 17. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Even though they say things like this that are foolish, even though they do things that are foolish, that's in spite of it all, the Lord has not wiped them out. Because he could have wiped them out, but he says, you're you're still around because I'm gracious. I don't change. He's a God of justice, mercy, love, faithfulness, grace. And because of that, Israel's still around. Israel's existence is not due to Israel's resourcefulness as a people, but because of God's grace and God's grace only. And Israel has made it a practice throughout their history to turn from God. It seems to be what they do. And yet the Lord is still declaring his love for them. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, early on, you turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. It's their history to turn from God. They've always turned from God. It's just been a pattern with them. And and when it says uh, turned aside means to depart from a, a road that they know well, or a path they know well, yet they've deliberately turned aside from that. They knew the path God wanted them to walk on. They knew it well, and yet they deliberately turned aside and they made a path for themselves that they wanted to walk on. That's what they did. But God does not give up on them. He's not done with them because of this. He's unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes, his promises. He's the immutable God. And so Israel is still still around. they still exist. Now think of our lives. Think of, think of your own life, I think of my own life, how much foolishness God has put up with us. How much nonsense, how how much sin, how much disobedience has the Lord put up with us? Just think of your own life. And we realized that we've sinned and disobeyed him too many times to count, maybe even this week or today. But he remains faithful. Regardless of all that, he's not then it's no excuse for our sin. But nevertheless, he remains faithful to us. His long-suffering towards us is nothing short of amazing. <clears throat> amazing grace, right? So, what does he do with the people of Malachi's day, this God of grace? He calls them to repentance. Verse 7, Retur- return to me, I will return to you, <clears throat> says the Lord of hosts. It says, return. Return is a famous, it's a well-known Old Testament word to describe repentance. The prophets are always using this word, return to me. Return to God. They use it again and again. Turn from your evil, turn to the Lord. It's either translated turn or return. You can do it either way. Again and again to express repentance. And if they return to God, the God of grace is going to return to them and, and bless them and help them and and and, and heal them. Isaiah fifty nine one and two states this Behold, the Lord's hand is not short, is not so short that it cannot save. Nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. You don't think God can hear your prayers, Israel? You don't think that God can save? Well, why isn't he answering your prayers, Isaiah says? Because your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's because you have turned your back on him. You've got to return. You've got to turn. You've got to repent and come back to God. They need to confess their sin. They needed to repent of their sin. They needed to offer sacrifices in righteousness, unlike the ones they were offering in chapter 1. And they're given that chance here. They're given a chance again, again and again and again and again and again and again. Through the Old Testament, they're given the chance to repent. Why? Because God is a God of grace. That's why. Story of the Bible, isn't it? Lamentations 3.22 says it's because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. It's because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. Why? He's always the same, right? They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What a gracious God we serve. We can thank him and him alone for our salvation and for keeping us, by the way. No thanks to us. Well, it's the God of grace. Let's turn our attention now to the second point I want to make, and that is a nation of thieves. A nation of thieves found in the rest of this Section through verse twelve, but let's read just for a little context. Let's read the end of chapter uh, verse seven through verse nine. <clears throat> from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you say, "How shall we return?" Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, "How have we robbed you?" In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. A nation of thieves, robbing God. First of all, notice their indifference toward God. Their indifference, verse 7. He told them, repent, turn to me, return to me, I'm going to return to you. What's their reply? You say, how shall we return? That's your answer. How shall we return? Expected answer, they should return to the Lord, right? Should automatically repent, turn to the Lord, that's what he says. What do they do? They say, how shall we return? In other words, is there a problem here? What's the problem? Have we done something wrong? You know, it's as if they didn't have a sin to repent of. That's how they. It's what you get the impression. But well, we've already seen several they were committing again and again, and yet they always have the same response. Who, me, repent? repent? You, you mean I've got to repent of something? What is it? How do we repent? What do we do? This attitude of complacency of carelessness you see among the people throughout this book as if collectively their conscience was defiled and seemed to have a very sensitive conscience toward God. You you, you read that with Paul a lot in the New Testament. He talks about the conscience again and again in many ways. He says, he's always saying, I want to keep my conscience clear before God and before people. I want to keep a clear conscience. He speaks of those who have seared their consciences with a hot iron. People that didn't care about their conscience. One of the things that we want, that's very important for the believer to do, is to cultivate a conscience that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit, that's sensitive to Him. Don't harden your conscience by rationalizing God's word, uh, by or, or disobedience to God's word, by giving in to sin, by being uh, not being diligent to spiritual disciplines, these kind of things. But develop your conscience for God. I like uh, Acts 24:16. Paul said. This great statement, he said, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. I'm to have a blameless conscience, Paul said. Now contrast that to the people of Malachi's day, and they're indifferent to the things of God. They said, how shall we return? What are you talking about? What do you mean? Then verses 8 and 9, notice their indictment, God's indictment against them. Here's the response from God, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. How do we do 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 that in tithes and offerings? Think about that. The very idea of actually committing robbery against the Lord is ridiculous. It's an absurd idea. The question sounds ridiculous. God says, will a man rob God? As if to say how ridiculous of a thought that is. That's crazy. Who would dare to do such a thing against this God of grace we've just talked about? Who could be so unfeeling as to rob God? You know, we know men rob other men all the time. Break into your house and rob people. But the idea of robbing God, that's a different thing altogether. And yet, as preposterous as it may sound, it was actually happening. He says here, you, notice verse 8, yet you are robbing me. The you is plural. It means many people were guilty of this, not just a handful of people. Many people were, were guilty. Uh, in fact, he says, the whole nation of you, it says in verse 9, were guilty before God. You're robbing me. And it's not just a one-time thing, one-time heist, one-time robbery. This is the regular, ongoing thing that they're constantly robbing God. And the Lord takes this very personally. He says, you are robbing who? You're robbing me, is what he says. You're robbing me. As far as he was concerned, the the offense was against his own gracious person. You're robbing me. They're taking that which belonged to God, rightfully belonged to God, and keeping it for themselves. And this is a serious charge leveled by God. Uh, Now, if the Lord accused them of this robbery, and he does here, don't you think they would understand immediately what he's talking about? They would know what he's saying. They, They should know how they robbed him. But they say to him, how have we robbed you? It's kind of like they're clueless as to what they've done. That's how they answer all the Lord's questions in Malachi. If you think through this, back in chapter 1, verse 2, they say, these are all answers from the people to God, how have you loved us? Chapter 1, verse 6, how have we despised your name? Chapter 1, verse 7, how have we defiled you? Chapter 2, verse 17, how have we wearied him? Chapter, uh, uh, and then chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. How have we robbed you? Again and again. It's their answer always. How have they robbed him? In tithes and offerings, he says. A tithe just means a tenth or a tenth part uh, of, of your income, of your possessions, whatever you have. The first mention of this in the Bible is Genesis fourteen twenty. Abraham has been off to get his, uh, his nephew Lot. He's fighting a battle against certain kings. He wins his battle He's coming back, and he, he's met by a man named Melchizedek, it says, who we're not going to go into tonight. It says, King of, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God. I'll let Mike go into that next sermon. <laughs> but Mel, Mel, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and what does it say about Abraham? He gave, gave him a tenth of all, right? First mention of he gave him a tenth of all. Genesis twenty eight twenty. Jacob makes a vow on his journey, and he, he says, if the Lord will see through, me through my journey then of all that God gives me, I will return a tenth to him. He's going to give God his due, he feels like, and so he's going to give him a tenth, which is what they did back then. Those incidents happened prior to the law of Moses. But then the law was given, and Leviticus 27.30 says, the tithe is holy to the Lord. It's Holy to the Lord. It's the Lord's. It belongs to him. It's rightfully his. He should have it. We should give it to him. And so Israel does not have an option. The nation of Israel never had an option as to whether they should tithe or not. It was an obligation. They were under obligation to tithe. They should have tithed. It's an obligation placed upon them by God, something they had to do. And that's spelled out in books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You tithes. tithe. And it wasn't just 10% of their income is what you got to understand. There's a debate as to how this works out, but ultimately there were at least there was three tithes. That they had to give, not just one, wasn't 10%. Reminds me, by the way, reminds me of a situation I was in, in a long time ago in my life where I was at a church, can't even begin to explain this to you. And we they taught tithing, we gave 10% of our income, and this ministry I was involved in said, now we need money for our ministry too in this church, and so we had to double tithe, he called it. Double tithe. I was going to school at the time, trying to pay my college bill. Now, you give 10% to the church and then 10% to this ministry. That's called double tithing, he said. Is that some kind of a scriptural concept somewhere? Uh, But anyway, we gave that. was broke all the time as a result of that. And the Old Testament is actually three tithes. There's a tithe given to the Levites to support them. See, we give money to support the Levites. Numbers 18.21 says, To the sons of Levi, behold, God says, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they performed. See, it was their pay. They served God. That's what they got paid, the service of the tent of meeting. Um, and that's what. And so the, the tithe went to the, the Levites, okay, first of all. Before I go on to the next tithe, uh, let me say this. You know the Levites also had to tithe? They had to tithe, too. No, numbers 28, I'm sorry, Numbers 18, 25 says this. <clears throat> numbers 18, 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, uh, You shall speak to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the sons of Israel the tithe, which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. Tithe of the tithe. And so I think, if I'm not mistaken, there's an organization that collects tithes from their particular denomination, and they give a tithe, a tenth of that to somebody, missions or something like that, I think. But nevertheless, the Levites were to give a tithe of the tithe. They were to give... 10% 10% of what they got from the people. According to verse 28 of that same chapter, that tithe was to go to the priest. Even the Levites weren't exempt from tithing. They had the to tithe, too, in the nation of Israel. And then there's a, a second tithe for the purpose of funding the religious festivals of Israel. They had their special days they had to fund. That's in Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 27. So a rather long section. I'm not going to read that. You can read it if you want to, do it later on, Deuteronomy 14, to 27, and other verses as well, tithes for religious festivals. And then thirdly, there was a tithe for the poor. Some people divide into part of the, the other tithe I just mentioned, the second tithe, but nevertheless, the third tithe for the poor, Deuteronomy 14, 28, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year, and shall deposit it in your town, the Levite, the alien, the orphan. The widow who are in the, your town shall come and eat and be satisfied. And so there was this tithe for the poor and the alien, the stranger, and so on and so forth, every third year. And so there was, there were three tithes. Not only were there tithes, numerous tithes, there was offerings. Offerings included things like animal sacrifices and special voluntary gifts, like when they had to build the temple, and people came and gave money for the in silver and gold and, and, and materials for the re- construction of the tabernacle, rather, not temple tabernacle, and later on the temple and all these special uh, voluntary offerings. So the nation of Israel was required to tithe and give offerings. You say, well, that's a lot. Um, But they weren't doing it. They weren't giving their tithes. They weren't giving their offerings, at least not like they should have. They weren't giving all of it, definitely. So the Lord says in verse 9, Malachi 3, you are cursed with a curse. Whenever you see a phrase like that in the Old Testament, it's a It's a strong statement, basically saying, you were exceedingly cursed. You're really cursed by me. They clearly violated God's word, and now they're under a serious curse by God. That's their indictment. Then look at their opportunity in verses 10 to 12. Their opportunity, verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. (laughs) Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, uh, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. This is their opportunity. And we talked about the God of grace earlier. And we see it here again. He's just indicted them. He's called them out. Seriously, you're a bunch of, a nation of robbers, basically. You're a bunch of thieves. And he's charged them with robbing him. Him, personally. He's pronounced the curse upon them. And yet now, he's going to allow them an opportunity to make things right. And not only to make things right with him, but change this curse of his into a blessing. Now, that's the God of grace right there. And so he says, bring the whole, notice the word whole, whole tithe into the storehouse. The implication there is they may have given a part of the tithe, uh, even, but not all of it. At best, it's an incomplete Obedience, which anyway you slice it's disobedience. It's like Saul when Saul was told to go wipe out the Amalekites, and he kept the king and the best of the animals alive, and he thought he was doing a good thing there. But that wasn't good enough for God. God wanted complete obedience. His obedience had to be complete. You know, the Lord's never looking for a partial obedience out of us. It's not what He wants. Oh, it's doing pretty good. You're doing a pretty good job down there. Got about three out of four things right. It's not what He's looking for. Partial obedience. He's looking for a complete obedience in all matters. So, the Lord, first of all, gives a command, verse 10, that is a command, bring the whole tithe into my storehouse. <clears throat> and then he gives a very practical reason for tithing. The first reason he gave uh, for tithing, by the way, was because they had offended the Lord by disobeying his word. He had made it very clear in the law, you're to tithe, give, and you're to give these tithes to, to support my people. Uh, and that's always first. Sin and disobedience is always first and foremost against God, isn't it? It's always against him, first of all. David when he sinned, went so far as to say, I, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord, and done this evil in your sight, even though he has sinned against others as well. So our sin should always be seen, first of all, in light of how it affects God. God has been offended. But there's a second reason given for, not to- for, uh, for, for sinning against God here and why it's wrong, and that is because there was a need for, for food to be in God's house, the temple, in other words, there, need, there was a need for the food to feed the Levites. There was a need to, for food for the priest. There was a need to support the, tithes and the, uh, the priests and the tithe, uh, Levites with tithing, not to mention food for the stranger and the poor and so on. And by not tithing, they were sinning against God, and they were sinning against their spiritual leadership. They were sinning against the nation. They were sinning against people. And all these, a very practical reason. You know, the Lord doesn't make a bunch of rules in, in the Scripture Uh, because that's what he likes to do. Everything the Lord says is for a reason in the Bible. His reason, but there's many practical reasons for why God does what he does. Did you know, in my opinion, the Bible is the most practical book on the planet in many ways. The Lord says, you're not taking care of my people. You're not meeting the needs of my people, so do something about it. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. It's very practical. Now, what is the storehouse? He says, bring it into the storehouse. Now, <clears throat> when I was growing up, as I said, I grew up in churches that <clears throat> said that we had to obey the uh, Old Testament admonition of tithing, in which their, in their reasoning was 10%. And in fact, I heard an entire sermon preached by someone who was very adamant about the whole situation. He preached on what he called storehouse tithing, a sermon he put in print, as a matter of fact, I remember, <clears throat> and he thought it was a very important sermon, one of the most important sermons he would preached. And he said, what is the storehouse? Very plainly, obviously, the storehouse is the church. Because he was pushing tithing. And so he wasn't a covenant guy or anything like that. It was just he was pushing tithing. So give to the church. We tithe to the church. Um, Give 10% to the church. That's what it's saying. It's based on Malachi 3.10, he said. Malachi 3.10 is saying, bring your tithes to the church. That's what he said. Only one problem with that reasoning. The storehouse is not the church in Malachi 3.10. The storehouse was a room within the temple complex that was for the purpose of storing animals and uh, crops and things that were given as a tithe to the people. That's all it was. It had nothing to do with the church at all. Nehemiah speaks about it. Nehemiah 13.12, he says, All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, not the churches, there was no churches back then. The storehouses. And that, by the way, Nehemiah fits in with this. That was after Nehemiah reprimanded them for not tithing. He says, bring the tithes to the storehouse. And same thing in Nehemiah 13. So they, the Lord says, bring the tithes to the storehouse. And then he offers this amazing opportunity to the people. He says, test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven... And pour you out a blessing until it overflows, or literally until there's no more room. There's not a, enough room to receive it. He says, Test me now in this. Now, when, I, when you first read that, if you're thinking through the scripture, you're thinking, wait a minute, the Lord says that we're not to te- put him to the test, right? When, when Satan tempted Christ in Matthew 4, he says, Look, he says, take him up to the pinnacle of the temple. He says, Jump off. The angels are going to catch you, uh, before you. You're not going to get hurt. He quotes scripture. He says, and what does the Lord say to him? He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't test the Lord. In other words, we can't be foolish in how we live. We can't live foolhardy and foolish lives and and do stupid things and expect the Lord to rescue us out of those things. That's tempting to God. Although I think there's a lot of people that do that, live foolhardy and do foolish things and and do a lot of things that are crazy and expect the Lord to rescue them. It's not going to happen like that. It's not what God wants. He says, don't test me. But here, this test in Malachi 3 is, is, is from God. And it's a way to honor God. He's saying, look, I want you people to test me. Now, this is grace. He could have just said, I'm done with you people. I'm tired of this. You guys always questioning me and disobeying me. I'm done with all of you. No, he, he offers them this, this gracious opportunity. And if the people gave as they should, if, they, if you tithe as you should, he says, if you do what I, my word says and you obey me, I'm going to bless you. In other words, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to open the, the windows of heaven, pour you out a blessing. In other words, I'm going to send rain. And your, your crop, crops are going to grow. And you're going to have abundant food. And look at verse 11. It says, the Lord will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground. What's the devourer? The devourer is literally the eater or he that eats. Who do you think that is? We refer to a lot of pests. Not somebody in the room, by the way can refer to a lot of pests or insects, but it refers to a locust specifically. Locust. Verse 10 and 11 leads to believe that there was a drought taking place in Malachi's time and that locusts were devouring the crops. And when locusts go to devour crops, it's it's over with. They devour everything in sight. I read this. This is interesting. Listen to this. During a prolonged dry spell, the eggs of the locust. there was a dry spell going on here, The eggs of the locusts remain, and they accumulate in the dry sand. Isn't this nice? They accumulate in the dry sand until the first rains. Then suddenly the locusts appear and devour everything they can to eat. Unbelievable. The locusts have always been a problem in history, and they're a problem in parts of the world today. But God says if you people will be obedient to me and give like I told you to give and support my people and my nation, I'm going to to rebuke the devouring locusts. I'm going to destroy them so they will have no effect on the crops at all. I'm going to rebuke them. And then verse 11 goes on to say, Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. Cast is a word that means to be bereaved of children or to be childless. In other words, your grapes are going to bear fruit. They're not going to be fruitless. They're going to produce. If you will give, like I said, if you will tithe, like I said, if you will give your offerings, like I said, according to my word, I'm going to bless your crops and they're going to grow. It's going to be a great thing. And the blessings continue. Look at verse 12. All the nations will call you blessed. You shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. The nations that formerly ridiculed Israel are going to be obliged to say as they look upon Israel, wow, these people, this land is really blessed by God because God sends rain on them and the crops are growing in abundance and there's an absence of locusts. And back in that time, that's an amazing thing to to have happen. And they're going to be forced to call Israel blessed if they do this thing. They're cursed, but they can be blessed if they'll take the Lord up on this offer, and so the God of grace extends this offer to them. And that's what it says in these verses. Now, does this have anything to do with us today? It's tithing for today. Yeah, you know, I know that, Now, as I say this, I'm very aware of the fact that many people here probably, as I did, grew up in churches that were taught to tithe. You were taught to give at least a tenth of your income. And as a matter of fact, by the way, this is true also, it's interesting to me that as you look at the giving, I know this because I'm the alleged treasurer treasurer of this church. (laughs) You probably didn't even know that, did you? Uh, It's just a figure. It's just a title. It doesn't mean anything at all. Um, But it's interesting to me that the people, the most serious givers in the church normally, you know what they give? and I don't know this, I can't prove this, I'm pretty sure, they give about 10%. <laughs> we can't get away from 10%. that's uh, just, we, we grew up with this mindset, I know this, and, and, and you know what, there's nothing wrong with giving 10%. Nothing wrong with it at all. If you give 10%, that's fine. You know what, Randy Alcorn has a book on giving. It's really uh, interesting. He says, his, his idea is, look, there's nothing wrong with using the tithe as a way to learn to give. Give 10%. It's going it makes you stretch it stretches you. Does not ten percent of your income stretch you? Somewhat sacrificial. And it makes you go the extra mile a little bit. A, he says it's a way to teach people to give. I, I can't, I mean, maybe it's a good idea. I don't I don't know. He's not he's not now endorsing or, or not endorsing tithing, I don't know, but he's saying it's a good a good standard to go by if you if you want to learn to give. Okay, that's what Randy Alcorn says. And I think it's interesting. But think about this. <clears throat> if everybody in the church gave 10%. Everybody gave 10% of their income. Can you think of the amazing things we could do financially? The missions we could, we could uh, mission work we could do uh, as far as giving towards missions. Uh, ministries of all kinds we could support in a far greater way if everybody gave 10%. Uh, but I'm not saying you should do that. Understand this. that Giving 10% or the tithe was a, an Old Testament concept geared for the nation of Israel. Understand that. Was, and there was more than one tithe. It's been been likened into a form of taxation. It was a requirement for the nation of Israel. Israel lived under what they called a theocracy, a government under God. And this tithing supported the spiritual leadership of the nation. And and so they were required to give it as somewhat of a form of tax. It was an obligation. It was not a free will thing. I'm I'm not talking about free will offering right now when I say tithing. It was an obligation. They had to do it. And they weren't doing it. Now, there's some references in the New Testament to uh, the idea of tithing, but they all pertain to Israel. Now, people like today, t- today like to talk about grace-giving. Unfortunately, uh, that often means we're going to give less rather than more because we're under the age of grace now, which is rather <laughs> odd. Um, some people think that grace-giving gra- grace means I can give less now because, after all, I'm under the grace of God, or I don't have to give anything. Because after all, we live under the grace of God. Does that make any sense to anybody? Now understand God owns everything. He owns all all of it. Whatever He has given you, whatever He's given you, whether it's little or much, He expects you to be a wise steward over that. That is God's requirement for all believers. And I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that the Lord wants all believers to give a at least a portion of their income, whatever that portion might be. Now, how does the New Testament inform our giving? Let me give you some ways tonight, uh, by way of application concerning giving. How does the New Testament inform our giving? Here are some ways. It's not exhaustive. Number one, all believers should seek to give of their income. I just said that, didn't I? All believers should seek to give of their income. You know, there's certain cases where a person loses their job. I understand all these things. Uh, they have problems of some kind are some similar problem. Of some kind I get all that you know um, but if a person has been saved by the grace of God I think it's a rule that we can give at least something to the Lord I think we should do that if we've been saved by God not all can give the same but not all can give a lot but but most can give some right we can all give something out of gratitude for what God has done for us the, now the people in second Corinthians 8 and 9 are big chapters on giving in the New Testament but the people in Macedonia Uh, The Macedonian churches were dirt poor. That's what it says in chapter 8 at the beginning. Just absolutely dirt poor. And yet, they wanted to give. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8.2. It talks about the Macedonian churches. It says, their deep poverty. Deep poverty? We talk about the poverty level in America, and it's some figure that these people wouldn't even understand. Our our poverty level in America is is wealthy compared to most countries. Uh, It says here, their deep poverty overflowed in their wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability, beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. These people were broke. They had nothing. And yet they wanted to give to help the saints in Jerusalem. And so they gave. It's amazing. The example they set. Now that does not mean, by the way, that you you say, okay, I'm going to, Mark says that we should give. I'm going to give, even though I'm flat broke right now. And and then you go out and you you know you go online and you run up your credit uh, debt on your credit card and you give to our church. Don't do that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm also no, I'm also not saying that, that we should run up debts on stuff that's not essential in our lives and then say well, we can't give anything to God. Don't do that either. A lot of times what we have a problem with is we're so far in debt we can't, we we say well how can I give to God? But that's our own doing many times. So not, certain circumstances come in the way that can that can be a problem for us, but Oftentimes we get ourselves into deep debt for no reason, no good reason. We need to be good stewards of God's money so we can give to the Lord's work, right? Everybody's got to deal with their own conscience on this. I'm leaving this to your own conscience. But I take it as a rule that everybody who knows the Lord should give something of their income. If you want it to be 10%, that's your business. If you want it to be 5% or 15% or 20%, that's your business. Secondly, give yourself to the Lord first. 2 Corinthians 8.5, it says of the church of Macedonia, they gave themselves first to the Lord. See, because if the Lord has you, he's got all, all your possessions, right? He's got all of you, everything about you. Let him guide you in this matter according to the scriptures. That's all I'm saying. Giving of our financial resources is no different from any other service we do for the Lord, whatever it might be. And when the Lord saves you, you learn that it's more blessed to give than receive. So give yourself to the Lord and and, and let him direct you on this matter of giving according to the scriptures. Number three, give regularly. Regularly. Systematically. We pray regularly, right? We read our Bibles on a regular basis. We go to church regularly. We fellowship regularly. Why not give regularly or, or, or systematically? You know, Ryan still has to pay his bills this month in Taipei like he did last month and like he will next month. That doesn't stop. We've got to pay our bills here at church like we do every month. I'm not making a special plea for money here, by the way. It has nothing to do with it. We're not looking for that. I'm just going through this passage here. But I'm simply showing you how giving should be done. George Mueller said something I never forgot about giving. And he was the guy who depended upon the Lord greatly for supplies. He said, only fix even the smallest amount you propose to give of your income and give this regularly. Even the smallest amount. And as God is pleased to increase your light and grace and it is pleased to prosper you more, so give more, proportionate giving. If you neglect an habitual giving, if you neglect a regular giving, a giving from principle and upon scriptural ground, and leave it only to feeling and impulse, which a lot of times we do, or particular arousing circumstances, you will certainly be a loser. That's true. We're not giving to God regularly, and we should be. Some amount, any amount. i told people, look, any amount... Is better than no amount. Start somewhere and just go with it. Number four, give joyfully. Second Corinthians 9 7. Each one, was, each one must give as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. It's not a it's not this is not a grudging, compulsory, obligatory uh, thing like the tithe was even. It's a it's it should be done joyfully. You're giving to the Lord, right? Think about what you're doing when you're giving to God. You're giving to the Lord. You're investing in eternity. You're giving to missions to help missions out. You're giving to help people out. I can't tell you how many ways this church has helped people out because of the faithful giving of God's people. Again and again. It's reason to rejoice, not be, not be unhappy, giving is. You shouldn't look at it that way. Number five, and finally, give worshipfully. Look at the, Turn with me to Philippians. We'll, we'll close with this. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, verse 15, give worshipfully. Paul said to the Philippian believers here in, in Philippians 4:15, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church share with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And Paul says, I consider that to be a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God." God. That's how Paul looked upon this giving of these believers in Philippi. He thought it was an act of worship to God, something that God was pleased with and he references this Old Testament idea of, of a sacrifice even. This is an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God when you give. Never look upon giving as just paying another bill. Don't look at it, oh, I'm going to go online and give now because i got my bills here in front of me. I paid the house bill, car bill, electric bill, church bill. That's not how we should look at that. This is an act of worship, giving to God. It's an act of worship. You're worshiping the Lord when, you, when you're giving to him. Now, these are just some thoughts on giving. I think they please the Lord, though. I think they're in line with Scripture. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but hopefully it can help somebody here tonight to be a good steward for the Lord. All of us need to think about this and how and every believer, every believer, each believer must decide for himself or herself how these things are going to be worked out in their life. But our ultimately our goal should be to honor the Lord in, in our giving. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful tonight again for your word. We just pray we would, uh, we see how you worked in Old Testament, we see how you worked in New Testament, Lord. We pray we would be those who, uh, Lord, that we would give you our entire lives, which means that we give you all that we have, which means that we're stewards of all you give us, and that we're to give to you that which you want us to give, so we can support your work, your church, your people, Lord, in many ways. We pray we would have a heart of giving, and not a selfish heart, knowing that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.